welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. Conditions that describe the United States for the past 600 years for people of color. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in Oakland, California. And I am Vahisha Hassan. I am based in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the third week of Lent, a time when Christians journey with Jesus toward his execution by the state, aided and abetted by religious leaders on Good Friday. We recognize that Jesus is still being crucified daily in black and brown bodies. That's why we are dedicating this Lenten season to thinking together about how we can dismantle white supremacy. Each week, we'll be gathering a different group of theologians, writers, movement activists, and thinkers to discuss the lectionary scriptures with that task in mind. Welcome to this conversation. Today, we are joined by several contributors to the Lenten devotional recipients which means a change of mind and heart. First, we'll have Jonathan Myers, who is coming from Spokane, Washington. We have Zan West, who is a proud resident of Oakland, California. Taiwo Stevenson, out of Virginia. Stephen Roach Knight, out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Brandon Rencher, out of Greensboro, North Carolina. And Amy Cantrell, out of Asheville, North Carolina, and we have our, our, our editor and, and co-host today as well, Nicola Torbett, who, as she has said, is, is coming to us from Oakland, California. On this podcast, we'll be discussing the lectionary text for Sunday, March 4th. hear from you, Jonathan, and uh, what led you to write this full annotated Ten Commandments. You do have all ten with corresponding annotators, and it's, it's impressive and, and well thought out. Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, and I, it, to me, it's, um, I was really humbled to even be invited into the conversation. Um, and it pushed me to, you know, really think through some things. I, I'm a pastor of a local congregation now. Um, and so I write sermons um, weekly, tend, they tend to be on the gospel. And so um, I wanted to kind of push myself into more creative writing. And, and when I saw that the, um, the Ten Commandments were there, I wondered if there was a, a way to play with those a little bit. Um, and and part of my reason was because they should be really self-evident and um, we shouldn't need to specify certain things like do not kill um, and do not covet um, and don't make idols. The, the problem is, is that I, I see in my community, in the white community, that we have a really hard time functioning with the universals. 
Um, and so it's not enough to say, do not kill, or to uh, love your neighbor as yourself, to even reduce the Ten Commandments down as, um, or essentialize them as uh, Jesus seemed to do. Um, that doesn't seem to work, though, so for people in power, um, because, you know, um, we want to find loopholes in that so that we can keep uh-huh. Um, so that was kind of where I started and, and I started thinking about white supremacy and, and this project and um, to you know find a way to really critique um, white theology which is not a term that's ever used um, nobody ever says white theology um, so there's a certain presumption around theology that when it's said on its own um, because the vast majority of theology that's been published has been published by white people and the vast majority of that theology has been published by white men, um, that become, has become the normative. And so every other theology that gets um, a label attached to it is reacting in some ways against um, that mm. theology. And, um, so that's, you know, kind of where, that's where I started with it. And that was um, how I started working with it. And to just rewrite the Ten Commandments, um, I, I just found that to be really challenging. And that's why I added the annotations because it just felt like some of it needed some explanation. Um, and so, you know, particularly the one where I said, you know, you shall not, you shall not murder or you shall not kill. Um, I think I said something to the effect of either by your own hand or by the hand of your police. Um, yes. You know, I, that bears some, some explanation, right? And so um, why, would, why would one add that in um, and be so specific? Um, so that's kind of where I started with the whole thing um, to push myself and to, uh, um, to be a little bit creative. Um, which is not something I normally get to do. Um, so that's kind of where I went with it. I'm glad we could be your outlet for that. And I'm going to close your piece by reading that annotation, that one sentence annotation of that um, thou shall not murder that you added. And it says, this includes actively working with your local police departments to implement implicit bias training demilitarizing on the ground officers and finding community-based accountability structures for policing. And this is an initiative that people are currently organizing in regional and national work. Alrighty, we have Zan next. And Zan wrote on John 2, 13 through 22. And her piece was called Black Child. And it's to, to writing this piece and, and how you found that relevance in this scriptural context. What you want to tell the people where you're coming from. It says, Black woman's advice to her daughter, your body is your temple. She advised as every child left home. Black child raised in churches was holy, but never worshipped. 
Black woman waits for a black child to return home, anxiously flipping through channels of men and police and state. She frets over the status of the temple. Black child sits on neighborhood curb, flashlight in face, asked what business she has there eight blocks from home. Black child sits on and squeezing Google because black child in churches was holy, but never worshiped. Black child queer, black child cast out of churches, going without, she comes within and sees temple in self. Then black child begins to understand. Black child begins to speak. Black child begins to confront. Black child begins to resist. Black child brick after brick becomes temple. Black child raised in churches is holy and worships herself. Just just talk to me, I don't even know. I'm just, I'm done. I'm laid out and flatlined. Um, I think a lot of what I was thinking about when I was writing this piece was um, as a new mother of a three-month-old son, I sort of feel stretched through this longevity of um, my past and um, the longevity of my family, the previous generations of my family, and Christianity plays a major role in um, the generations of my family. Um, I come from very like uh, devout Southern Baptist family. My mother's a pastor. Um, I pastor a church. Um, and all the way back to, you know, as far as we can go on my mom's side, um, back to slavery, Christianity has um, played a very important role and that, that Christianity's meant something very different for each successive generation. So now, as I like birth and bring forward this next generation, it makes me think a lot about um, Christianity and what that role will be um, in our family and in this generation that I'm bringing forward. And so, you know, part of it, you know, that, that piece very much comes out of my own experience of my mom always saying to me, your body is your temple, your body is your temple, um, but never really feeling like I understood what she was trying to say when she said that. Right. And also being raised in the church, but being raised in a church experience that didn't reflect anything that meant your body is your temple. Right. And mm. so very much of what I hear Jesus saying in that um, gospel is that I am the temple. Right. Like my body is the temple. But what if Jesus isn't referring to just himself? What if Jesus is saying all of our bodies are a temple? Um, and how does that um, if, if we truly acknowledge that each one of our bodies was indeed the temple, how would that play into not only the choices that we made for our own selves, but then how would that play into the way we treated other bodies and other people um, as part of that, that temple and as something that should be worshipped, right? That each one of us um, deserve to be worshipped, especially as a clear, queer Black woman, um, my body isn't often worshiped or appreciated or seen as something that's holy. Um, and so not only um, how does that affect what I expect from other people, but how does that affect the decisions that I make from my own life? What do I invite into my life based on what I would invite into the temple, right? Like I work in a church and there's certain um, things we see as sacred that would happen in a church, certain things we do and don't do. So what does that mean for me um, if I see myself as a sacred space, then what am I willing to invite in um, 
to my space and to my environment um, as something that is sacred. Um, as a child that I very much see as a part of God, what am I willing to bring mm-hmm. around him as a sacred, um, you know, as a sacred piece of God? What am I um, establishing in his life um, for his temple? And, you know, like full of a lot of sadness a lot of the time as I think about, you know, what his life looks like you know i think about trayvon martin there's really nothing that makes my son any different than trayvon martin right but that Mm -hmm. that is um a temple that was destroyed in america right and the money changers are still in the temple we know that the money changers are still in the temple and that um i think i say in my piece the money changers are still in the temple and black bodies are the currency right and so if my son is going to be traded as currency um, in mm. America, if his black body will not be worshipped as a temple, um, what what is the reign of God that I really want to bring about? Is the reign of God about, you know, black bodies being able to be sacred? Um, and what will that look like? That is amazing, Zan, and a profound perspective uh, for all of us to consider and, and take in and look at our bodies as temple and look at the bodies that are being slain as temple as well. Thank you. Love in advance to baby boy. Thank you. All right, to, to Taiwo. Taiwo's piece is entitled, Once You Were Strangers. The uh, short snippet that we're gonna read is, is where he's um, discussing America. So the we and that, that he's just talking about is Americans. So we must become tired of defending whiteness over right over rightness. As we know and understand that we all have bias, we should take our sin to God and allow God's standard to be our measuring tool. That would allow this season of Lent to move from a religious act to a transformational position, one that allows for God's people to exist authentically, exercising the beauty of their language, culture, testimony, and knowledge. As our hearts are changed, we should be reminded to cling to God's justice and inclusion as people who may look different than us. God's glory can be displayed in America when we treat each other with respect, regardless of background. Recognizing variety makes us all look better, resembling a mural of the sunrise that captures an array of colors. We can speak glory when we honor the biblical and value all of humanity. Taiwo, speak to us how you got to this perspective and what you would have people to know where you're coming from. Okay, um, thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, uh, I came to this perspective uh, as I was reading through uh, the Psalms um, and reflecting on um, uh, this the, actually the last couple years, and uh, you know, I allowed uh, I've allowed the Lord to change the way that I have interpreted Scripture previously. So when I was reading this Psalms, um, I I just began to see diversity. Um, in the beginning of the text, it's talking about um, it's it's talking about uh, you know the you know uh, uh, well, what I saw, you know, was the glory of God, but I used 
in my mind, I, I felt like it was talking about diversity because uh, it, you know, started to talk about, you know, the sky and the stars and, and, and the horizon. And, and I began to think about the different hues in the sky. And I began to think about uh, the different clouds that could form, you know, the different times and day and just the, just the array of colors that, that was presented in the scripture. And to me, it was a perfect analogy of diversity because, uh, you know, the scripture is, is clear. Um, when we're talking about the heavens, we're talking about an array of colors, different presentations. Um, and all of them have their place within existence. God created all of it. So I guess the inspiration uh, was to, to create, um, I guess, a template for a sermon where I could preach uh, diversity and allow the congregation to experience the Torah and reimagine purity uh, in a new way. So when I go into the piece about, you know, purity, typically, um, the way, well, the way that I was taught to interpret scripture was from a standpoint of right or wrong in terms of morality, what we do, what we don't do, uh, kind of behavior driven um, as mm-hmm. opposed to motive driven and, and, and allowing who God created us on the inside to kind of flourish and start from there as a base. So um, when I talk about purity, I'm talking about um, really being authentic and who God created us to be as opposed to uh, what we may have been taught from a particular background. Because in my experience, um, I've been involved in a few different denominations and in different denominations, different behaviors was considered the norm. So, you know, say, okay, so at what point do I become authentic? You know, mm-hmm. at what point, you know, is the God in me enough? And the God in me allowed to be expressed in a way that um, is authentic and pure and uh, not having to meet any particular um, religious or denominational standards. So um, that's what I see actually exhibited in the Torah, because uh, throughout the Torah, you know, it talks about, well, in that particular scripture, I think in uh, Deuteronomy, it you know, it, it makes room for the stranger, the person who participates differently, who has who has different a different cultural background, who may um, you know have different beliefs, but it makes room for them, and it and it allows for the person that is spiritual uh, for them to accept that person that's from another land, you know, the person that's a stranger, um, and I think that that's very important, especially in this context in America, because uh, I think largely now it's it seems to be apparent that there is a clear separation uh, between um, conservatives or non-conservatives, or you know, even along political lines, so on and so forth. So I think for me, when I was reading the song, it was a clear picture because uh, the Psalms are something that is always traditionally 
displayed as a thing of beauty within the Bible. You know, the Psalms are things that, you know, bring life and, and animation and, you know, they can, they, they can bring you to a place of sincerity, you know, a place of tears, you know, to a, to a place of joy, to a place of anguish, to a place of deep thought. And for, for the writer to talk about um, this in my mind, it took me to a really spiritual place. I love I love that Taiwo and and it really ties together the things that have already kind of been said by your counterparts in terms of that tapestry and that making room, right? So Jonathan gets into the normative way that theology is just just deemed just white and it's 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 not marked and that's it. So that doesn't leave room. And then um Zan is like, well, what do you do in this body, in this brown black body? Where, where's the room for me? When, it, when, when do I get to be holy? When do I get to be worshiped? When do I get to have space, have space there? And so that seems to be a, a theme kind of running through, kind of running through this area. And Steve picks up on that. Steven, Steven Roach Knight um, picks, um, picks up that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, specifically, because, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but just in talking about what happens when there is no room. So the, the title of, of his piece is Love to the Thousandth Generation. And he said that it resonated within him, showing us steadfast love through that whole time period. The short piece that I'm going to read from him says, so much of the work for us today in moral resistance and contemplative activism is about healing sacred wounds. And this comes from Teresa Mateus and learning to transform them so that we can be healed people who heal people rather than hurt people who hurt people. And we're often so caught up in the urgency of movement moments that we do not stop to do the vital work of pulling the poison of white supremacy out of our bodies. This comes from Alexia Salvatierez work. We unintentionally perpetuate systems of oppression, even though we say with our hearts and our minds and our lips that we are staunchly against them. And it's a lifelong commitment that we must struggle to take on day after day after day. And it's really easy to become weary and well-doing, especially when we fail and we hurt those who we love most and want to protect most from any further suffering or oppression. And the biggest theme of, of Steve's work is talking about that love goes through the thousandth generation, but as does trauma, and that some of that trauma comes from the folks who, were not, who didn't have space, space were not left from, for them. So we can, can we hear Steve in about five minutes, <laughs> how, you were, how you were inspired to speak about both the love and the trauma that runs through the same veins of these thousands of generations. Mm, yeah. Thank you again for inviting me to be part of this project and um, be a contributor with all of these amazing folks. Um, when I was just um, kind of doing Lectio Divina and these, the passages for this week of Lent, um, just the space that I was personally in, the phrase that just my heart needed at that moment was, this idea of God's love being extended to the thousandth generation and just the immensity of that. Um, 
that was just a message of God's love that I needed to hear in that moment. And, um, and, and I just connected it to, 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 you know, kind of what we're learning and, and just beginning to understand about generational trauma. Um, and, 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 to put this idea of God's love next to, next to that is just a hopeful um, thing for me. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I'm someone who is dealing with, with, as a white person who's dealing with their own stuff and how I am, am hurting others intentionally or unintentionally, <laughs> usually unintentionally. <laughs> um, and and trying to figure that out like what is what is going on and how do i how do i um how do i change that how do i make a difference um so that i'm not perpetuating oppression um when that's you know you know like i say in that piece like that's my my everything about me and my intention is to to not perpetuate um oppression and yet uh, unless there's this, this intentionality uh, on a daily basis of really examining it and, and really interrogating it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so easy to be, be become asleep, um, to go back to sleep and to, and to perpetuate that oppression. And so I, you know, my admonition in this piece to, 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 you know, fellow white folks is, is to stay awake and to do the work um, and um, the, the, this hopeful idea that there are moments where the wind is at our back, so to speak, um, where we really do, um, even in the midst of kind of crisis and chaos, which seems to be kind of on a daily basis with the politics of, of, the, of the day, um, even in the midst of all that, there's a sense that, you know, the, the arc of the, the universe bends towards justice. And sometimes we, we get a glimpse of that and we get a sense that God's um, justice is, is, is at our backs and is, is pushing us forward. And so, um, yeah, it was just, um, <laughs> I don't know, a, a hopeful message that I personally needed and, and I wanted to, to kind of pass along um, to others who, who would be reading this piece. It's a it's a poignant it's a poignant hope, Steve Stephen, because you still juxtapose that love with what you call like the the evidence that's coming out about inherited trauma in in our DNA. So we're gonna have like a Kendrick Lamar moment, right? So in in, in these in these lines of DNA, as Zan is talking about being this black black temple and now coming through with another generation of a son, and we have all these people in the tapestry not not reflected over generations and generations. And where does that leave us now? So we do need a hope, but also that recognition of, of, of that poison over time. So thank you. Thank you. Next we have Brandon Rencher, who uh, talks about what kind of power. And I mean, I just, I hope you know some history because Brandon, <laughs> all history, all up in his piece. <laughs> know any before you will know some after after now so i'm going to read uh just one snippet of yours um coming from john 2 13 36 is where the expression is is unpacking says those of us who are table turners are sure to be met with resistance our opponents will demand we legitimize ourselves they'll ask what sign can you show 
us for doing this. They believe they know what real power is, but what kind of power makes possible a prison state and a religious prison? In Jesus's day, it was the love of money shaped by the power of Roman citizenry. In our day, it is the love of money shaped by the power of white supremacy. This is not love, it is death. Jesus demonstrates the only real power that exists is the spirit, which has the power to transform all things into life. This is the spirit that has the power to set the captives free, freedom for those locked out of the pews and locked up in the prisons, freedom for those locked down by the chains of white supremacy and capitalism, and only the spirit can cause life to rise from death, can cause every human body to rise into its eternal possibility. <laughs> so I just I just had church. Um, so if you could tell us, Brandon, how you went from Angela Davis quote at the beginning to this analysis of, of Jewish and Roman times to American current day and to a Maya Angelou still I rise close at the end. Well, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> feel really honored to be in the lineup with such um, incredible artists and contributors and faith leaders across the country. Um, yeah, I think originally the reason why I chose the John passage is because the, the Gospel of John is often seen as um, an otherworldly type of text. Um, it, it's not typically raised up as um, <clears throat> the Gospel that is Jesus the social justice leader? We tend to turn to Luke for that. And so I felt a challenge in that regard to look at John with fresh eyes. And this passage um, invites it in a really unique way because um, right on the surface of the text, just on the surface reading, we can see that there's issues around money um, and people and Jesus is um, doing something. Um, and so I grew up in the church and I'm a pastor now. And typically the way that passage has been read is um, to, you know, not turn the church into a business, but it's about um, relationships. Another interpretation I've heard is that, um, you know, in this situation, the business of the church was being prioritized over um, these folks having a personal relationship with God. And it's not that I dismiss either of those interpretations of the passage, but it seems to be something else going on. And I think for me, a couple of things jumped to the surface. One is that there was a little bit more going on in that space where they were exchanging money. And I wanted to unpack a little bit more what, what was being um, uh, blocked off, what was being blocked off in that space. And it was a space where um, the undesirables could worship and build community. And so since these money changers were in that space, they weren't really giving, given the chance to do that. And it immediately made me think about um, the prison industrial complex. And I thought about Angela Davis. Mm. And, um, and so that's how the Angela Davis came into it. And the other thing too, is that the, the scene right before Jesus is um, driving out the money changers, he's at the, the wedding. Um, at Cana, and he turns the water into wine. And so you juxtapose this scene with Jesus meeting needs 
with Jesus um, challenging the status quo. Um, so, so Jesus is not just um, offering programs. Jesus is trying to revolutionize yes. the ways in which we understand the role that our institutions play for our communities. So it, it just, it, I, I felt like I was just being thrown all over the place. <laughs> and, I, and I tried to capture those voices um, and those perspectives in this piece. And I think I'll end with this. What Angela Davis did for me is, I mean, she's so, um, I mean, she's an exquisite writer, but, but one of the things I love about her writing is that she, she makes um, the case for a prison state so clear and simple in many ways. And this text does the same thing. And so for me, it became a bit of a, um, a bit of a dialectic of the prison state and the religious prison, um, that mm. in both cases, we have figured out a way to lock out those who are under, undesirable. And Jesus is contesting that, but not only contesting it, offering um, a way out. Um, obviously that's connected more to the passages after that, but uh, we see Jesus um, really, you know, moving in that direction um, at the end of the passage. So. It had, you know, it just, it shook me all up and uh, I tried to communicate um, what I thought was going on there, so. You communicated your shook up very well <laughs> to the point that you shook us all up. <laughs> That's true. That's the true. One, one line I'll close your piece out is this is not the sentimentalized, am I saying this? Help me, help me. Sentimentalized. Thank you. Sentimentalized Jesus of colonized and consumerist Christianity. Militant nonviolence is on full display in Jesus's actions. Glory be. <laughs> That's an, an amazing segue into our next contributor, Amy Cantrell, because she is basically the, the same militant nonviolence on full display in Asheville. She basically gets up in the morning and she turns over tables all day long and then she goes down for a deep rest at night and i'm grateful for her and her work in in the community her piece is called marking the unmarked and it also comes from john 2 um 13 through 22 piece that we're going to pick out for her unpacking is she begins how often as a pastor have i heard the term the black church but never do i hear someone say the white church it is assumed and whiteness has shaped the institutional church Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Jesus had walked into the white church, a church that too often has sold out our high calling and our siblings of color for privilege. We've turned the sanctuary into a marketplace from chattel slavery to Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow, which meant we had to worship whiteness and make God in our own image. Many, many people walked into the temple the same day Jesus did, but they did not see what he saw. What was happening there was the default. It was normal. It was the way it was. It was unmarked. Speak to us, table turner over, Amy Cantrell, how you got to this piece and your inspiration and the work that you do. I'm joining my brother all shook up. Over this, Brandon, thank you. And I, I think Jesus is a community organizer here. He's standing in that role. And, and I go back to Jonathan's commandments. 
And I think these are God's demands. And that Jesus is a community organizer is, is laying out God's demands in the temple for those who are locked out and locked up, as Brandon said. And so one of the ways that I got to, to this passage, to the, the deep truth here, um, was through my experience and, and part of my call story uh, that I tell earlier in, in the writing, meeting a man named Catman, street name, sitting on the steps of a locked church behind mm. the big red door. And I'll never forget the power of that image is just seared into my mind. Um, and, and with it, with him sitting there locked out um, as a black homeless man, a poet and a prophet who spoke to my heart and witnessed to my faith. Um, he's the one that shook me as Jesus uh, does in this passage. And, and issued God's demand to say, this is the default. This is what is normative, is that the church is cold and the mm. church is locked up and locked people out that mm. are God's children. And I thank you, Zan. I say hallelujah. Um, in terms of understanding body of temple, I think Jesus creates an alternative here, an alternative temple, even as he is uh, table turning. He is saying this, this is no longer the temple mm. because it is no longer acting as sacred space because it has locked out and locked up God's children. And so I come to make a demand in this space and to set up in its place a, a misalignment as, as it were of white supremacy. Um, and that's why I say this temple is white in terms of its functioning as the default, um, it's functioning in the ways that the state was setting up people um, over and against each other and over and against what God uh, deeply commanded um, to the thousandth generation of love, as, as Steve says. And so how do we then uh, begin to take up that same activity as community organizers for God to demand that? we have sacred space again and to recognize that new alternative temple, um, particularly when it comes to black and brown bodied people who are, as you say, being slayed uh, daily in this country, who are being imprisoned, who are being pushed out and out to the streets and who are homeless. And so I'm just constantly reminded of this passage that Jesus is literally living out his faith. He's incarnating himself in this passage and all those around him to say, we are, we are no longer going to accept this as normative, but we are going to mark what's happening here and we are going to lift up God's sacred space, um, which is the temple of the body and rise up. Literally he calls, he says, says this temple is going to rise up. And so one of the practices that, that we have here at Beloved Asheville is that every Good Friday we go to the streets and we mark space, we contest space um, to say this, this is what's happening in our city. These are the folks who are being crucified today. Yes. And we, we then turn tables to make God's demands about that. Thank you, Amy, both for laying out how you were called to be a table turner by the table turner by a man locked outside of the church who 
was spiritually such a table turner in that moment for you. Yes. And and reimagining temple, it just is. It does it not just keep coming up? Oh, just reimagining this this temple and who's who's locked out and what that looks like. Um, thank you, thank you so much. Lastly, we have our very own Nicola, who's both a contributor and an editor. Just the fact that you somehow managed to make the time to both edit all the things with me. And as contribute because you see I did not mm -mm. so I was like I'm just gonna be on this editing game <laughs> so I commend you doubly for making it all happen um she came from first Corinthians first chapter 18 through 25 and it's called falling on my knees short excerpt says white people like to know things we like to think we can fix things I come from a culture of knowers who have been fixing things for centuries and in the process, we have decimated communities and nearly destroyed the planet. The wisdom of the world, all the things I'm so certain of, all the things that seem like common sense, all the beliefs and ideas and ways of being that have been socialized into me as a white child, the wisdom of that world has gotten us into the desperate circumstances in which we now find ourselves. Our salvation does not lie there. There is grief in acknowledging that so much of what I have been taught is bankrupt, but yet there is also hope. Being a knower feels safe to me, and yet I am coming to see that like so many other forms of safety and invulnerability, being a knower is a trap. It's a trap, especially for me as a white cisgendered person with middle-class connections, and especially when it comes to kingdom justice. So speak to us, Nicola, from the perspective that you come. <laughs> I think uh, this piece came out of some musing that I did a couple years ago about what it would be like to give up certainty for Lent. Mm. Uh, and that was prompted by an exercise that maybe many of our listeners have done. Um, it's, a, it's a common exercise in anti-oppression workshops. Um, and sometimes it's called step up, step back. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it goes, you know, step up if your parents own their home. Mm -hmm. Step back if a member of your immediate family has ever been incarcerated. Um, and it goes on like that. And inevitably, what happens is that the cisgendered white men, uh, especially owning class men, end up kind of with their noses pressed against the front wall of the room. And the uh, queer and transgender women of color are way in the back of the room. Um, and it's a great exercise for sort of demonstrating how social systems work. Um, but I always like to take it a step further and ask participants, now, if you don't look around you, but just straight ahead, who can see more of what is happening in the room? Mm. Mm. Wow. And then I also ask people who has access to the microphone and publishing and all of the ways of getting what you can see out into the world. <laughs> um, and it kind of drives the point home. And, you know, at a certain point, I had this realization that I don't, not only do I not know, but I don't even know what I don't know. Because the white vantage point is normalized 
Um, I guess that's a theme for us today. We've been talking about the unmarked marker. Um, yes. White point of view is presented as universal. Um, and so white people tend to think that we know things because it's getting confirmed to us all the time. When in reality, there's so much that we can't see from where we're positioned. Um, and I, I remember as I was coming to realize that how much grief was in that and how much, um, how humbling it was to realize that I don't know what I don't know and that I have to rely on people of color to teach these things or show me what I don't know or tell me when I'm, you know, when my slip is showing or whatever. Um, there's this, this humility that is called for that actually feels right to me. Um, you know, I fall out of it all the time, but it feels like the starting point. Um, so yeah, I would want to ask our white listeners, what would it be like to give up certainty for Lent and to just allow yourself to hear some perspectives that maybe seem um, surprising to you? I, I love that. I, I love that. That's because certainty does feel safe. And you just did that so well. Like, how do you stand even with that step up, step back, stand in the front with all of this certainty where you can only see yourself and the people who are stepped all the way back have actually the most broad perspective and are forced by position to see all of the things, but are the least likely to be heard and the least likely to have the mic. You just gave me a whole entire visual and hopefully the listeners as well. Thank you. To sum up um, all of our contributors today, I just want to thank you for taking this time both to write your pieces, to just put in your spiritual and, and, and your, your time and your thought in, in this podcast as well. And saying that from this is what I've, I've taken. We have Jonathan annotating what we think we know with his Ten Commandments. We have knowing and feeling and being value as God's temple from Zan, making space in tapestry for the full spectrum of us from Taiwo, following both love and trauma throughout all of our generations from Stephen, power analysis both to rise and turn tables from Brandon, and marking the unmarked and examining normatives from, from Amy and from Nicola falling on your knees so that you can actually have a different vantage point to see our world and our faith. Thank you. part of the Word is Resistance podcast where we call our listeners to action. Our call to action will remain the same for the full season of Lent. We're asking you to learn about the present day state-sanctioned killing of black and brown people by law enforcement, corrections officers, and vigilantes. And we're further asking you to take action to end it. We'll link to a full set of educational resources and action ideas in the transcript. 
Thank you for joining us this week. As always, the transcript of this episode is available on the Surge website, and it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of resources to support your action. Next week, we'll be joined by another set of amazing on-the-ground theologians, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss even one episode. You can find out more about Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. And I am Vahisha Hassan. Yeah.